You're listening to the Audacious Leadership Podcast. This interview was recorded by Senior Pastor Glenn Barrett during the coronavirus lockdown of 2020. For any more information about us, head to our website, audaciouschurch.com. Tonight, we're going to be interviewing Musi Mamani. Musi is a great friend of mine. We've been friends for around 14, maybe 15 years. And uh, he was, uh, until recently, the leader of the Democratic Alliance Party in South Africa and has recently started a new movement in South Africa, which is very, very exciting. So we're going to be talking to him about life. We're going to be talking to him about South Africa. We're going to be talking to him about recent events surrounding George Floyd. That will all be happening tonight. And that will be absolutely brilliant. So wherever you're coming from, great to have you with us. With Musi, we've been friends for about 14, 15 years. Uh, you're going to find out a little bit more about Musi, a little bit of behind the scenes, the life of Musi and his wife, Natalie, and their amazing kids as well. Here we go. We're going to... Ah, Musi Mamani. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm good. Thanks. And you? Good yeah, to I'm... see you. You too, mate. Where are you coming from tonight? Is this the Houses of Parliament? Is this, is this your back bedroom? Um, have you been sleeping <laughs> on the couch because you've been naughty? I mean, where are you tonight? I am from the headquarters of Liverpool Football Club, uh, the, the, <laughs> regional, the regional branch here in, uh, in Cape Town, and also um, the home of the world champions, the rugby, uh, the rugby champions. So that's where I'm bringing you greetings from. <laughs> well, let me just say this, mate. Numbers just plummeted. As soon as you mentioned Liverpool and, uh, and the rugby and the fact that you're world champions, we lost like a thousand viewers in a second. <laughs> hey, uh, Musi, tell us why Liverpool Football Club? You know, as a, I, I grew up as a child, like, and uh, in, and in, in well, most people grow up as children, I suppose, <laughs> but, but, um, but, uh, but in the eighties, Liverpool were the dominant side, and so it's a childhood. Uh, I've backed them since the days of Ian Rush, John Barnes. I've backed the side, and um, so I'm not a, I'm not a recent Liverpool fan. I've stuck with it, and my kids have. I'm glad to see that in all the seasons, they're now coming into the season of the glory days of Liverpool. I'm hoping. Is this, this is a prophetic word right now, isn't it? From a man of God. <laughs> that that's what you're <laughs> believing. Well, yeah. just, just so you know, we rebuke it. Paul Reid has just put up some blue hearts there because he's an Everton fan. So uh, I think that ah. he, he's standing with you. But mate, you, make sure you give, give our love to Natalie and the kids, won't you? you know, at, the end of, at the end of the interview tonight, we love you guys and uh, appreciate you coming online with us. And, uh, and being a part of the conversation. We're big fans. We're big fans of Audacious Church. We're big fans of you and Soph. We love you guys and, and just love our friendship and just honor what the church does. I think it's, it, is, it is my favorite church in the UK. I might, uh, I might lose some friends, but uh, Audacious <laughs> is certainly my, my favorite home and, uh, and you guys are family to us. So we love you lots. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been... I guess friends for 14, 15 years and uh, over that time done a lot of, a lot of crazy things together. And really we were meant to be together in Australia, I think in, in April this year, you yeah, know, we yeah, missed yeah. that chance, but we went to, we went to um, Scotland in November. So that, that was pretty fun, wasn't it? Just hanging out for a few days and oh, having conversations. It is. And I know um, it probably has been one of the best trips I have ever done in my life. And we had an unbelievable time with, uh, Neil and uh, Leone, and just it was at the right time. I just finished my it, 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 my my journey in Parliament, um, and just that November 
was for us like a watershed moment and i it'll, it'll be one of the most things that i etched into my spirit forever and, and it was one of the best 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 things we've ever done in my entire life i can say that yeah for beautiful. sure and and Sophie is an unbelievable uh, woman of god i she's um she's uh she's she's really really special and that she has the faith and the courage to be married to you <laughs> demonstrates courage <laughs> <laughs> she must be a woman of god um, <laughs> well listen mate we, we we're going to get into, into politics in a few, in a few moments time we'll, we'll we'll just talk here we'll have a conversation a little bit about your journey into politics um and also your your dream for south africa moving forward you know in a few moments tell us a little bit about the new movement that you've started which is pretty outstanding and uh, in terms of what it is now already, but but your vision for that, um, I just thought for a few moments, uh, not to waste time, but to help people kind of understand who is Musi Maimani a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Let's do some really rapid fire, just really quick, seven questions, really quick, quick answers. Um, just trying to get to know you. So, Musi, what's your favourite movie of all time? All time, probably remember the Titans. Uh, it's, I love that movie. It's one of my favourite. Yep, yep, I love that too. <laughs> favourite book of the Bible. <laughs> Um, I just thinking about it now, probably I'll be a bit boring and just probably go with the Psalms. You know, I'm very, very, very much, very, my favorite is the Psalms. Hallelujah. Ah, that, that's, that, <laughs> you love the poetry and, and all that. Okay, man, that's good. Uh, Musi, you are, you are a preacher. You've been a pastor for many years as well. You're, you're a pastor who's moved into the political spectrum, which is outstanding. Um, so I guess a lot of your oratory skills, you know, within parliament, within politics, in front of the TV, the media has been honed on the stage of the many years that you've been a preacher. Can you give us one of your preaching fails? What's one of the moments where you've got, oh my gosh, I wish that hadn't happened. We've all got, this. I've, yeah, 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 yeah. I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had quite a few, but I'll never forget for as long as I live. One of the first sermons I had, I, I started preaching and it, it just, I felt like I was preaching to like, like trying to raise the dead, the church sat there, nobody was saying anything. It was just awful. And I thought, I thought I'd prepped so hard. I'd spent weeks like preparing for this thing, praying. I looked at the clock and I was like, like, as I conclude, I looked up, I realized it was five minutes into the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, as I walked off stage 10 minutes later, this woman walked up to me with this book called polished error or polished errors of preaching and i she just said i just want to encourage you with this book i think you should read this and it was just like a whole thing about preaching so i'll never forget that moment <laughs> I've quite a few. oh mate we've all been there my gosh all right uh <laughs> who is your favorite sports personality of all time either past or present you know i'm a big fan of i've Recently, I like. I guess it's everybody in the world. I've just uh, been watching the the Last Dance, and so Michael Jordan has just come back, and yeah. you know he was he was big, and he's still a a big, 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 big sports person. And and I and I would I would say more than anything, one of my favorite favorite sports guys was a young soccer player for Kaiser Chiefs, Doctor Kumalo. I grew up watching this guy, and he was a phenomenal, phenomenal player, great player. Yeah, beautiful man. Could have gone far. And and you remember my son's favourite South African footballer, don't you? Simpiwe. <laughs> Simpiwe Shabalala. I'm sure he should be on this thing. Uh, uh, Shabalala. He's, he's, a big, he's a big man on Instagram. He's great. He's a great friend. Send him our love. Um, best worship song of all time? 
best worship song. You know what it is? I I I love um you know I always I always it doesn't matter what season or what phase I'm going through that whole great hymn it is well with my soul. I just Oh my gosh. That just that's just one of my favorite of all time. Um, yeah. Do you know I was um, I was actually watching a choir singing that 2 days ago in my office and um it was really moving. It is I mean the, the whole story behind it is really moving as well. Sure. Uh, sure. Musi, if you could be self-isolating with three people, either they're either dead or alive, but if you could have them in your house in lock this period of lockdown, three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, and in all likelihood, um, I've always been fascinated by, by Bill Clinton. I think he's got some interesting personality issues. So two US presidents and one South African one. We could self-isolate, and I'm sure we could have a long conversation about those. So, as a... I'm sure you'd have a fascinating <laughs> conversation. Um, all and, right, um, what's oh, that's good? I mean, and what, what's what's the last song you listen to on your on your iPod, on your on your phone, whatever you've got there? What 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 are you playing at the moment? You know, I have this crisis um, when when Apple moved towards iTunes. And that became quite a big thing. It, down, it deleted my entire music album. And then they went through a phase where they were giving out those free U2 albums. They had one that they <laughs> gave out. And you yeah, could just have it on the thing. Yeah. And I, I really do think I'm a big fan of U2, but that was probably one of the worst albums they've ever invented. And, and you, sadly, you got it for free, that's playing on my phone. Still, yeah, I got it for free, and it's, it's the only <laughs> thing that plays on my on my phone. So now I just I just have given up on all of that. Uh, <laughs> it's tragic, but um, but I guess the song a song a song at the moment. Uh, Planet Checkers have just released a new album, and um, being in awe of you, and I, and it's been an it's been an interesting time in the recent while, just listening to to just what the sound is out there, and I think. I've got the sense of deep sense that God is in control of it all. Yeah. And it's such a powerful song. And so I've been listening to that when I kind of, in the, in the hours that the, the South African government lets us go run, but it also all go jogging. That's what I listen to now. Sure. Yeah. Um, listen, mate, I appreciate you coming on tonight and uh, spending the time chatting with us and, uh, you know, talk to you during the week. And one of the ways I really want to direct this conversation is really in, in the light of the tragedy and, and, you know, events since George Lloyd and, and really George Floyd and really highlighting um, racism and, and inequality, which is clearly not just an American issue. It, it's a global issue. It's present, it's present here in the United Kingdom. It's present here in, uh, you know, in England, it's, it's, it's present in the USA. And I think, uh, some of your experiences, you're, you're uniquely placed, I think, to actually speak in, into this situation and give us some wisdom, uh, give us some direction and help us to understand how maybe we can approach things in our thinking and deal with things in our hearts. And, um, Musi, I wonder if, if we could just go back to, in a sense, the beginning of your life to create a little bit of context for everybody who's watching this live and for everybody who'll be watching the IGTV a little bit later um, over the next few days. Tell us about the Musi Mamani where you were born, where you were raised, and the South Africa that you grew up in in your in your early days. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, I I grew up in Soweto, and for those who don't know where Soweto is, it it was the township set up by the apartheid government back then that said black South Africans were allowed to live in, 
and it was just uh, southwest of Johannesburg. So Soweto is actually more southwestern township is the acronym. And it was an interesting community. I mean, Soweto is vibrant, is beautiful in many ways. The music was rich. The tapestry of culture was unbelievable on that one sense. But uh, no one can also deny I grew up in a fairly violent society. It wasn't abnormal for me to to have watched uh, violence take place in our street. In fact, I always jokingly say, I knew how to make a petrol bomb. So you make a bomb out of petrol way before I could learn how to ride a bike because that was the context we live and we understood. The system was set up in such a way that apartheid dictated to many black South Africans uh, where they could live, who they could marry, what opportunities was available for them. And it had a lot of pent-up anger for many people. I grew up in a... Also, I, you know, the gratitude I also hold is that I had two unbelievable parents. My father is um, from one tribe in South Africa and my mother is from another. So in some ways, I grew up in this mixed cultural environment that gave me access to a broad spectrum of, of people. And Soweto was this melting pot of the different cultures, people would come from afar searching for work and this is where they'd be placed. And that was my upbringing. I, uh, I, and, and I mean, I, you know, at one level, the story of apartheid is but one component of it. The richness of the township was another component of it. But also, we grew up in a Catholic home. So faith was, was another dynamic. And so much so that the first group of of white people I ever met and I ever saw were the Catholic priests. Mm. So they defined everything to me about what it, what white people were like in that one sense, other than the military police that were around in Soweto. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know, when I, what my first ever prejudicial stereotypes was watching a white priest would walk around in the middle of winter with a short sleeve shirt. And I think, you know, white people are strange. They don't get cold. <laughs> and, and I've always so 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 there was that dynamic, but faith was as much a, a component of life in Soweto as other dynamics were, because yeah. there's a church nearly in most streets in Soweto, and the influence of faith, most kids would have been influenced by it. So I grew up in that context. That's that's what my upbringing was. Yeah. Um, I remember many years ago now, you and I, we went to Soweto, you took me for a meal and, um, and we spent some time in there and, and you created a little bit of context for, for life, you know, for you as a child. And, and I guess, you know, in the midst of everything, you saw um, extreme forms of, of, of racism taking place, you know, and, um, and I think that's why you're situated in a great place to be able to speak, speak into this situation uh, it, uh, towards the end of the interview tonight, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to bring God into the conversation because I think that there's a massive amount that we can talk as pastors, um, you know, and, and really as God really being the hope for humanity, for a broken humanity right now. But mostly one, one of the things that, that really impressed me 14, 15 years ago and getting to know you and the games that we've been to over the years and the different things we've done is you are a very learned man, you're an intellectual man, so you, you went through schooling, you did uh, a degree, and you got a degree in, is it business? Uh, I did my, my degree in psychology, then in economics, and um, 
public administration and then I did a master's so I, I did two masters one in economics and another one in uh, theology yeah and then you've gone on to yeah. to begin studying your, your PhD as, as well and uh, it's amazing you speak how many languages right now I, I speak eight languages there are 11 official languages in South Africa there are three that I'm I'm, I'm wanting to learn but uh, I, I'm going to carry on going I can I can hear a little bit but I can speak about eight fluently fluently and to all the people so so tell us the journey then for you Musi, about you know growing up in Soweto growing up in a home that had faith um, you saw you saw racism at, at work you saw community coming together you saw a lot of great things um your journey to becoming a pastor i mean how, how did that happen what what did that look like was that a was it a coincidence was there a defining god moment that, that yeah. actually you know brought things to life how, how did that work yeah I, I mean you know i i i think i think from my name musi uh, was given to me by my grandmother and, and musi is a swana name for leader and ruler i wish it I mean, it could equally have been about good looking, but I can't, I can't. Do that. But, anyways, <laughs> but no, you can't, but, you can't call yourself that. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, my wife, my wife says that's what it means. But no, 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 no. But, 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 but. So you, I kind of grew up in a community that was charged up in activism, charged up in a sense of you've got to do something, whatever that is, and I. So the only model of people I had were these very famous Catholic priests. When I was growing up, of course, towards the latter part of the 80s, when you begin to formulate what you want to do with your life, HIV was becoming quite a big issue in South Africa. And I remember being inspired by this Catholic priest who thought to themselves, they'd, they'd want to take on the virus so that to not only destigmatize HIV, but also to be able to say to people, wait, hang on, I can... Uh, I, I'll be able to fight this battle. And so naturally I thought to myself, I want to serve, I want to serve in some ways. And I'd always thought I'd be a Catholic priest, uh, strangely. And then through high school, uh, as, as, I, as my faith, I gave my life to Jesus. And, and that began a journey. It began a journey of youth work. It began a journey of, of, of trying to serve other different people. And when I, when I finished school, I, I was young when I finished school, so I was 16. And so I had a year where I thought I could do whatever I like because I couldn't drive, I couldn't go to university or any of that. So I took a year off. And in that year, so I volunteered in a local church and I thought to myself, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come and serve. I'm going to serve people. We're going to run a, a number of programs. And it was in that year where I, I think more than anything, God began to shape something in me about, ministry and what God had called us to. I always felt that it was a journey that in some ways found me. It found me as a young person who was energetic, who on another day I was involved in politics in Soweto, was always looking for activism and God took me along with that. So we, we started a youth ministry. I served in, the, in, our, in our local church in, in Muldestrift and and that, that gave us, in some ways, the passion for, for a love for God, but a love to serve others. The, the transition to politics emerged out of that. Funny enough, I was preaching at another church, and while I was preaching there in this youth conference, I felt, I felt God say to me, there's a young person here who needs to go into politics. Yeah. And naturally, I said, oh, you know, like gave an altar call and said, I'd like to pray with that young person. And no one responded. 
and saw like a good preacher. I said, is there anyone with a headache? Because there's someone with a headache. You just don't <laughs> want to be left alone. You know? That could be another epic fail right there. But, um, but at the end of that sermon, I got in the car and my wife said to me, I think that young person was you. And at that point, I'd known what politics meant. Politics was violent. Politics saw people getting killed in Soweto. Politics was, was just not, a, not something I'd really genuinely considered. And it began a journey. I can remember coming to Audacious Church and kind of, I remember Pastor Russell preaching and speaking about, hey man, you need to have this sense of movement, that sense of uh, activism, and you carry a nation. And in many ways, even our presence at Audacious, I remember our first conference there, just, just how that impacted almost as it acted as a confirmation for just even that sermon, even that moment. And I made a decision at that, at that time. I said, look, okay, I will go. I didn't want to be a public figure. I didn't want to be, I didn't think about it from a position point of view. I thought I'd run a business. I'd been involved in church so I could help the department of education, at least deliver textbooks, do something like that. Having spent that time during that, uh, that uh, all of that, I decided to stand for public office and ended up being leader of the opposition in South Africa. And still today, hold a deep, passionate dream of saying, how can we serve our nation? So the journey hasn't been one where I felt that I'm serving God any less or any more. I've always felt that God has directed me. And even now, just reading through the book of Samuel and working out David's own journey, I don't think the David you bump into tendering sheep is the different David who fights Goliath, is a different David who leads a kingdom, is a different David. All of those are part of the tapestry of the story of God that's woven in. So I've never felt there was a transition. I've always felt this is a spiritual journey that you carry all of it. And so even when you end up in parliament, I never thought when I walk into parliament, okay, this is a political arena. Of course, language is different. Of course, uh, the codes with which we transmit the message might vary from one place to another, but it doesn't mm. change the, the mission. It doesn't change the sense of, I've always believed in the fact that God has made all men in their image, in his image. Yeah. And I've never departed from the fact that whatever we do, we must fight for an inclusive um, South Africa in whatever form. So I've always defaulted towards whoever is left out, even in ministry, even in politics. Uh, and that's why... And that's why the journey for me has never been about either or. It's always been about this is the mission God has placed you in. And whether you're in business, whether you're in church, whether you're in politics, and having had the fortune, the privilege to be able to do all of them, I felt it's been the best way I can serve God in whatever context that is. Yeah, I, I think what, what, what's been really fantastic, Musi, in, in, in watching this journey over 14, 15 years, is to see, you know, where God's taken you from from the point from the time that we've known each other and, and we made a friendship to the point where a few years ago I remember landing into Johannesburg, I think it was, coming out of the airport in Johannesburg and there's a big billboard with your face um, on it. And then driving through the streets of Johannesburg and there are there are, there are flags and banners off off the lampstands um, with your face there. But actually knowing the man behind the the mission or the man behind the banner has been a unique thing to be a part of. And one of the things I want to honor you for is your integrity, you know, um, doing your utmost for the people of South Africa at all times to see South Africa really healed, really restored and really become the powerhouse 
that really God has planned the nation of South Africa to be, to, to watch you, to, to read, you know, the BBC website, CNN, and to see images of Musi Mamani coming up. You know, um, you know, I remember reading one article saying, uh, here is the new Nelson Mandela and, uh, and, and a lot of great things that, that have come along with your obedience with God. And yet also in terms of you walking the God steps, that there's criticism that you've had to deal with, you know, yeah. sure as a pastor, but definitely as a politician as well. How do you, how do you manage the, the, the sense of the blessing of God on your life and yet the burden of walking with that, that the God hand and the God mission at the same time? Because it seems like blessing and burden, they always go together, don't they? So how have you handled the criticism yeah. and, and negativity that inevitably comes from public office? You know, I, th I think in, in the beginning it was very hard because, you know, there's a famous saying that in politics you need a thick skin. And I'm always arguing the case, no one is born with a thick skin. So, so in the beginning, you used to, every tweet that would come out, you would take personal. Every, every statement, every negative article. I mean, there are journalists who thrive on being able to say, I was able to destroy person X's career. And so I'd almost see their name on the byline of a newspaper and know that whatever is coming after that would be poisonous for me and certainly for the people out there. But I think the the longer I got in the longer I got into it, and this is the grace component for it, is that it's a bit like if you fly a small plane, when it hits turbulent waters, turbulent feels bigger than the plane and it feels uncomfortable. If you fly a much bigger plane, a Boeing, and I've been on both, when you fly a Boeing, it, it's irrelevant what the turbulent is like outside. You may even get an announcement that there'll be turbulence, but invariably you sail through it because it's a much bigger plane. And I've always reminded myself of that story that the bigger your convictions, the less the criticism and all of that begin to matter over a long period of time. Of course, often they're closer to home and that becomes harder to navigate. But if the if the why is very clear in your head, if the why is is clear, then I think the sacrifice becomes easier and easier. It, 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 the burden will always be with you, but never lose track of the why. And whenever I found myself in trouble politically is when the why has become fuzzy, where your convictions become unknown and you start to think to yourself, this is about me or it's about my career, this is about whatever, then I think naturally you end up in a space where everything is personal. But I've, 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 I've had to learn that the, your criticism of me is not a criticism. You're criticizing a mission I'm on. And, and we have a saying in Zulu that says, uh, the, the dogs only bark at a moving car. And not to refer to anyone as a dog, but I've, whenever I've read some articles, I've always thought to myself, well, we got to just keep going because we've got a much bigger mission and we can't allow ourselves to be sidetracked by small, by small distractions of that nature. Uh, they still remain personal. It's harder when it's, when it's your family because they didn't sign up always for the public life. And so someone would write to say, your wife is a white South African, you're a sellout, you've done all of that. And, and sometimes you've got to take that and know that the attack you're attacking is not me because you're not really after me, you're after the mission and therefore God protects it. So I've, 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 it's, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. I can't quite say that I was always had that resolute mindset. It, it was even tough on my own faith 
you know, there'd be times where people would be like, oh, but Musi, you're just a Christian, nice guy, preacher, stay in the pulpit. In fact, in Parliament, people would be like, ah, oh, he's just a pastor and whatever, and be very dismissive of that. And almost I felt a bit cowardly in, 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 in thinking about my own faith and its interface with what is happening with the story of the country and now have become much and 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 it was always fascinating for me to raise a very sensitive topic i'd i'd, I'd been in israel and I'd, I'd met with the israeli prime minister and then there were images and i'd been to both sides israel and palestine had dealt with both sides it's just the one image of myself and and the israeli prime minister was flashed across news all the way here in south africa and i can remember people taking me apart uh, on such a sensitive issue. And in coming back, I had to ask myself, did I do something wrong? And I didn't believe I had because I'd engaged both sides and I'd seen for myself the situation in the Middle East. But then I had to know that you don't have much. You've got only got your convictions as a leader and you need to stick through those. And it became such an important lesson for me, that experience. It was hard going through it. But since then, it kind of strengthens your back a little bit to say, all you've got are your convictions. You are going to get people. You're going to get trolls. You're going to get attacks. You're going to get all sorts of things. And yeah, there are moments where people celebrate your life. But at the same time, when they criticize you, they're not criticizing you. They're criticizing the mission. And therefore, you've got to be resolute in the journey that you walk on. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And, you know, I think we could, we could in the broadcast there, take that clip and that clip could go viral because I think, for every person in life, the whole idea of walking with blessing and burning and knowing how to handle that um, has so many different ramifications. I think the principles transcend every area of life, and that's fantastic. But um, it, you know, it's been brilliant over the years to actually be in in South Africa, walking the streets with you, just to go to a restaurant or whatever, and at every turn, people stopping you to have conversations with you. You know, almost that sense of of David went from being in, in a field to all of a sudden he was thrust in, into the limelight. And I think that what God's definitely done with you because the integrity of your heart, the way you've, you're living your life with you know, your wife and your kids and, and based in local church is I think God is honoring you. And I know it's your special birthday coming up, isn't it? You, you are, <laughs> it's a big four zero. <laughs> it's the small four zero. And, um, and my gosh, you know, we'll see, you've been doing this for, it seems like a long time, but, but God has not finished yet. And uh, Sophie and I were walking and talking this afternoon and just, you know, really speaking over your life that, that you're only 40 and who knows what God is going to do in the next 10 years. Um, I think it's going to be a remarkable story to, to have. So we love and appreciate you got fans in the UK, mate. We're, we're, we're with you in heart and soul. Um, listen, on the, on the issue of racism, you know, carrying on this conversation, I, I, racism isn't evil. That, that really exists in our day and age. And at the moment, there is certainly the, the focus as a result of George Floyd and the situation associated with that. And racism, of course, has many forms. We know that. Um, but tonight, just really focusing on, on, on in the context of black and white, though it has other ramifications as well. Of course, we have the overt form of racism. We have covert racism. You know, there's, there's conversations associated with microaggression and, uh, and, that, and I'm sure that everybody watching this has done their own study and reading on that. But another term that, that you know, is, is used quite often in different contexts and conversations is the idea of white privilege. And, um, you know, for people watching this and people watching this, you know, through the next seven days, we'll see. Can, can you just create a little bit of, a, of an illustration? Give us a context for, for what white privilege um, is and, and how 
white privilege exists in, in countries of the world so that people watching this can go, okay, I understand that. I get that. You know, I think, Glenn, you know, and, and, and it, it, I can speak on the context of South Africa and hopefully there'll be lessons for other parts of the world, you know. South Africa, for many people, the majority of people are black by 80% and the minority white South Africans are less than 10% of the number of people who live in this, in this country. And yet in many ways, the world feels white. And the conversation about white privilege is, a, is often can be likened to trying to explain to a fish water. Sure. Because to a fish, water is normal. Language is normal. Culture is normal. Um, all of those things just become assimilated. And we live within a global village that accepts the fact that the world is like that. And therefore it feels privileged to so many others because when they look out to it, it to a white South African or to a white person, it feels like this is our normal. This is water to us. And so much of it is an inherited legacy that mm -hmm. has a, allowed an advantage. So my wife is a white South African and often even just using those terms, black and white can feel very uncomfortable for many people. But I, I, perceive them to be terms of diversity and for the purposes of this conversation I'd, I'd leave them there but for her for example her, when the old apartheid government would spend 70 rand per day on her education it would spend 3 rands per day on my education as a black South African yeah. but she would have never considered or, or considered that that is wrong she would have just assumed it to be normal Right. And so the idea of white privilege is assuming that normalcy that feels completely like abnormal for many other people. So we'll walk around the streets. If we both walk into a store, people will assume, and I remember this, we arrived once in our first, uh, our first ever trip together as a married couple, we, we flew into Ireland. And I remember arriving in Dublin and and I was carrying the bags. We didn't have a lot of money, so we're flying Ryanair, and we could only take one bag. And as we landed there, we got through the border post, and the woman looked at both of us, and she said to me, oh, she like, in a very nice way, she just said to my wife, it is so nice of you that you are taking this African with you. And I'd paid for the trip. I'd done all of that. But the assumption was that she is the one with the money. There is no ways you would have money. Or she is the one who is providing for this. You must be so lucky. And, I, and so you kind of find yourselves in context where the world views success, intellect, uh, progress with being white, that anything that is outside of that is either A, abnormal, B, less than. And so you would find often I'd walk into a room, a boardroom as a business in business with a white colleague who wouldn't need to audition for legitimacy. People would just assume, no, that guy's smart. He's white. He knows what he's talking about. Mainly because the people sitting on this side of the boardroom were generally also white. So it felt like this is normalcy. This is what it is. And I think that is often a privilege that many white people do not know and do not understand. Because so much defines normal. 
and therefore it's the strange bit about in my neighborhood when I still would walk around running around and if it's a white neighborhood someone will look at me and almost feel like you don't belong here this is not what you this is not where you ought to be living you should be living elsewhere often people and this is one of the things i've really come to appreciate often people will look at me and say wow you yeah. speak english so well and i'm like yeah. like speaking english is not an achievement it just is a function of education so i i i think that term for many people often evokes they look at the narrow word of privilege and assume but i'm not privileged i don't i'm not better than you but they don't often see the context with which it plays itself out and this is not about condemning white people it's about understanding that wait the world is in many ways organized around our own identity and often mm-hmm. when it's that something that might be different doesn't make it less than it just makes it different that's all it is yeah mosi that's um actually a brilliant brilliant explanation of of it you know uh, over the last two weeks i've sat in dozens of of calls and and you know zoom and conferencing calls you know talking about this very issue and that's as, as clear and succinct as i've ever heard it put and certainly i think for for many people listening to this it's it's going to be an eye opening understanding of exactly what is meant by that and um you know and talking to to people in manchester people in the united kingdom you know that is that is a reality that 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 you know the black community are facing in the united kingdom right now um when we when we get into the concept of systemic racism uh are those two things really uniquely blended together tied together the concept of systemic racism and 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 white privilege do you see them going hand in hand yeah in in many ways and and i think even the concept of systemic racism i think if we look at it biblically you know sin moves from an individual to a community as a as a function of time it's it's adam and eve in the garden then it's cain before you know it there's a whole tribe of people who have taken on a view and you've got tribes taking on other tribes we have lived through intergenerational and this 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 point was rammed home to me i went to gori island on the coast of senegal and when i was at the island i it was the first place where uh, uh, slaves were taken from senegal into 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 the us and while i was sitting at in this cave where these slaves would have to be prepared for their journey made me realize how much so much of the world has created a systemic form of oppression from one race to another and it took courageous people who fought against slavery to see that as abnormal noting that well within the context there was a history of belief that slavery is a normal part and that nobody saw often that actually this is slavery against a particular race of people but the i'm so grateful for men and women who stood up against it from different races who said no this is wrong and we're willing to confront it the yeah. systemic racism occurs often in economic opportunities and in the criminal justice system where you begin to see not only our own biases and and there's a great book i would ask even in the time malcolm gladwell's book on talking to strangers is really such a great book about bias in the sense that we look at someone across the room and we seek what looks normal to us i even find myself connected globally with other black people even though they may come from a totally different from 
from Jamaica or from the US. But I think one of the connecting themes is that I would feel as a black person, I'm a descendant of slaves in one way or another, understand it. And there's a generalized pain that goes with it. But having noted that, the systems will get stacked up against you. So in the criminal justice system, it's the judge who says, just by virtue of the color of your skin, I can tell that it is likely that you've A, committed a crime or not. Or it's in the economic system where just because of the color of your skin, we're not sure you are as competent as someone who's of a different race. And I think those scenarios play themselves out in ways that are overt and in other ways that are less than so. And I, and, and author, I can see it even now just if, as a, it happens across both races sometimes because I can see it even with my wife that I will go to a township and someone will say, ah, you are married to a white person. You have done so well. It's like you've stepped up. Now, my wife is incredible. She's generous. She's unbelievable. She's smart. So in some ways, I'm willing to jokingly, <laughs> not jokingly, but genuinely accept the fact that I've, she's a great individual to be married to. But there is a subtle context where sometimes people go, just because of the color of your skin, you've, done, you've gone up a level. And that tells you that there's also a systemic form of people who have been oppressed who eventually perceive white to be better yeah. rather than just to be different. Yeah. And I've also seen the other side when people ask her to say, I mean, what, what went wrong that you ended up with a black man married to? So, so the systems are in place. The system are things that we even here in South Africa are grappling with because we've inherited so much of this, the legislated system called apartheid, but other parts of the world are still living through almost accepted cultural norms that perpetuate a systemic inequality and a systemic exclusion of people. Yeah. Um, we'll see, one of the things that has, has come to light you know, over, over recent weeks and conversations is how you know, trauma uh, in the black community is passed in some sense from one generation to the next in terms of worldview. And you know, there have been you know, people in, in various parts of the black community across Manchester and across the United Kingdom as I've been on continual Zoom calls over the last two weeks who've been kind of helping, helping white pastors, white leaders to understand the trauma associated with racism, not just from what they've currently experienced in their generation, but in previous generations as well. One of the things that, that you know, is, is obvious to us all in any form of trauma is that trauma then creates a filter through which we see the world and, um, and those filters uh, are based uh, or have been established through trauma. We all have trauma in our lives in some degree. We all have a filter. What, what has been amazing in the journey of South Africa and how can we talk about the subject without actually talking about Nelson Mandela? Because, you know, I've, I've been to Robben Island where he was imprisoned maybe three or four times, been to the lime pit, you know, um, seen the cell that he was in. And yet this man came out of, of prison and where in some senses the nation was braced for massive amounts of turmoil, war, civil war, revolution, whatever. Here came a man who spoke healing, who, who spoke in many senses a different language to what some people were expecting and became an advocate for peace and unity and equality globally. And, you know, we, we still 
you know, years after his passing, still in awe of, of this man as a leader. Can you tell us um, what was it about Mandela that caused him and enabled him to actually speak healing to a nation that at that time was so divided and to start South Africa on a journey of healing? Can you pick up on two or three characteristics of the man? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think, I think there's something to know that violence always begets violence. And when, when President Mandela, I mean, who was a fairly revolutionary in one sense of the word and in his imprisonment, knew that in coming out of prison, to reinitiate violence would only breed more violence. And other African states who've gone through transitions from a fairly colonized history to freedom went through violence. And I think it, there was some courage that recognized just that fact. And so what we cannot do in our world today is reward racism with more racism. There is nothing that helps any human being when we sit back and say, oh, you hate me because of the color of my skin. I will return the favor. Not helpful. The second dynamic is, I think Nelson Mandela, the second characteristic that I always admired of, 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 of Madiba is that even though Afrikaans as a language spoken here in South Africa was a language of the oppressor, as it were, he took the time to learn the language and made the very conscious case of saying, if you speak to another human being in their language, you speak to their heart. If you speak in your language, you speak to their heads. And I think there's a metaphor in that for leaders to say that you have a duty to seek to understand prior to being understood, to journey into the world of others. And Nelson Mandela, despite him not being Afrikaans, knew that he could understand Afri Afrikaans people and be able to interrogate what was going on in that situation so as to take because inherent in all human beings is goodness. I, I do not believe that, and in his words, you know, human beings, if human beings are taught to hate, they can also be taught to love. And love comes more natural to human beings. Yeah. And, and there's a dynamic in there that he knew he could translate into that particular issue. And then, and then I think the third dynamic is always to seek reconciliation. You know, in truth, all of us are on a journey. All of us all of us in seeking to understand one another are at varying degrees of conscientization. For someone, tonight might really well be a realization that I didn't realize my life was that privileged. I didn't realize that when I walk into a store, no one is checking to see if I'm going to rob it or not, whereas for someone else, that's a natural thing. That, that might be a good starting point. For others, it's a journey of saying, hey, I pastor a church that's so diverse and there are so many people of different races. Perhaps it might be worth my while to figure out what is their pain, what is their grief, without trying to transpose it with a guilt or with a worry, but just to really just let's seek to understand, but pursue reconciliation. Because at the same time, as I made it earlier, racism only begets more racism. And ultimately, I know I default towards, and I would urge that we default to reconciliation, particularly as Christians. So, so in thinking about the George Floyd scenario, of course, what took place there is brutal. And of course, it is not undeniable that black lives matter. And we should be okay with saying that. You don't need to be black to fight for black people. Neither do you need to be white to fight for white people. You just need to be someone who believes in a reconciled society.
and be comfortable with that. And therefore you pursue it. And yes, the, the images, as much as there's been images of violence and there's been images of genuine anger and African-Americans have every right to be angry. The system has dispossessed and they've been left out and another senseless murder of a black American is an injustice in the world and we must pursue it. There can be no denying that to suddenly say that all white people are racist is also not going to be helpful. What we need is as the police have taken the lead to say, we also condemn racism. And therefore, for a pastor who is white, who is now battling through the question, I think you, you will become courageous. The easy part would be to almost rely on there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no, all of us are one in Christ. But I think that the scripture went to a point of trying to denote this is a Jewish, this is Greek, helps us understand that in us celebrating diversity does not make one race more superior than another. It just makes us a diverse potpourri of creation that we can stand up together. And when one of us is suffering, then we can, then, then we can all condemn it collectively and say that is wrong against that race. In the same way as as a man, if a woman was being beaten, knowing that as a man I derive benefit for patriarchy, no one looks at what I wear, no one treats me, I derive a benefit. I know that. I must be willing to stand up when I see an injustice occur against a female, that I must be the first one to stand up and say, that is wrong. If the, and that, that violence is being perpetuated by another man, I don't just have this solidarity that's false. I stand up, I say, as a man looking at another man, what you are doing to that female is wrong. There's nothing also unjust about white South Africans or white people in general standing up and saying, as human beings, as fellow human beings, what is happening to the black community in America is wrong and it is happening in too many other spaces and we can condemn it collectively because we believe in the value that, that humanity, the person, is made in the image of God, even though there might be a darker shade than the next person. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Musi, you got my vote. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the clarity in your heart behind this, uh, your ability to put it in, in a way that is, is really a healing balm into the midst of this conversation in the United Kingdom. Musi, you know, we really, really appreciate it. And we would encourage you and employ you to stay on course for the presidency of South Africa. Um, you know, we're... we're, we're totally um, supportive of you in that and, and appreciate your voice. Listen, um, Instagram sadly is going to cut us off in six minutes time. Uh, I've got a million more questions, mm. but, but let, let me, let me just quickly just ask you a few um, in the, con in, in the reconciliation conversation. One of the things that I have been hearing over, over the last two weeks is white leaders, white people saying, I'm nervous about talking about race with black friends in case I get the conversation wrong in case I get my wording wrong how would you how would you counsel somebody who is white who wants to talk about these things who wants to call these things out but doesn't know what to say and equally uh to, to somebody who's black who, who kind of recognizes it in the workplace in a, in a church context and wants to call it out how, how do those conversations how, how can they begin my 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 first uh, at least uh, encouragement is, is 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 if you have a friend who's of a different, firstly, get a friend with a, or, or, genuinely of a different race. Don't, like, like you and I, I, I genuinely believe in our journey, God has brought us together. And there's nothing, no confession, I would hope that I would have the freedom to confess anything to you. 
and you wouldn't think less of me. Do you understand what I mean? Whether that area was an area of sin, whatever the area was, because we have a brotherhood in there that allows us the space to have a conversation without walking away thinking, Glenn is less of a Christian or Musi has lost his way with God because we've journeyed. And I, and I, and I think that every individual, particularly leaders who are leading in diverse contexts, you need a diverse group of people who you can have those conversations with. Because it's in that time that give you the space to say, I, I'm not sure I understand that. Or this is my position privately because leaders have to grapple with things privately and lead publicly. You have to be willing to wrestle with someone in a small space. My wife and I have had conversations that have ended up sometimes we in separate rooms just around this issue of race because she might say something and I might say, you don't understand what's going on in this, in this context. But we were able to grapple so that when we walk out, the voice that we communicate has really been out of a genuine wrestle. And I would urge for leaders who are particularly committed and recognize that their leadership mantle isn't to people of their same race or just in their same school. I mean, your mantle is to lead across various parts of the world. Therefore, it is not wrong for you to be able to go. Uh, you'd never arrive in Australia and say something about an Australian that you've maybe not grappled with with an Australian friend of yours or whatever the case might be. Therefore, I would urge that it is a leadership imperative to be intentional about the issue of saying, find people around your circle of friends, your closest influences, who have a different view to yours and a different skin color to yours. Because if you are going to lead in that context, you need someone that you can be able to help you along the journey in this regard, because we don't know what we don't know. And then when we speak, you also, because those are the people who, when they say, but we know your heart, we'll be the first to defend you. Yeah. Um, we'll see one more question, um, really associated with God. We've got three minutes um, and then we're going to go dead online here. But, but how, do, how do we bring God into the middle of this right now? How would you recommend we do that? You know, the, the, the story that comes to mind is we have to be willing to break the jar, the anointing jar over the situation. And I say this like this, that for so many people, we experience privilege and we experience an advantage that maybe it is an undeserved advantage. But you, you take that advantage like the woman with the jar, walk into a situation and say, how can I break this here? And to, for, for nations, there's a genuine question about title and title to land that might be helpful to many people to say, in this space, you've been dispossessed. But actually, as our own faith, we want to be able to, in a restituted way, here's what we're going to do. To others, is education. You know, I wouldn't be here today unless there were two white South Africans who said, in the dark 80s of apartheid, I'm going to go into a township and identify kids that I can teach English, maths, and science. I remember those subjects. And they spend Saturdays just doing that across the color line to the risk of their lives, but they broke the jar. And I, I think to me, this is the anointing oil flowing, is when we're able to go into spaces and whether that be a physical attempt at saying, I want to bring restitution in this instance, or whether there's a spiritual dynamic of saying, I'm, I'm going to come here, sit at your feet, and just allow my position to be one 
of one who is broken and who will be sitting in a in a position of servant rather than in a position of lecture tell you you got to fix your life do this do that that is not helpful for anybody but i actually genuinely there's a moment now where as i saw a police captain in the us go and kneel by a black protester and say how can i serve you help me because that breaks the jar that breaks the jar that opens a new aroma it sweetens the conversation and i believe in this time it is what corona has given all of us with the one minute i have i promise what corona has given us is a deep reset it's given us a hard reset and it's asked us to look at ourselves and it's asked us to reconcile that we are all made in the image of god it's given us a deep love for people who are all on one side to say we oppose racism and all of us black and white can do so but now the next step behind the journey isn't just being able to hold hands it's to be able to consciously say where can i break this jar where can i take what i've inherited rightly or wrongly or however and yeah. be able to say i want to share a little bit of it imagine yeah there's an opportunity there there's a great opportunity for our future and it will be helpful across nations but it will also be helpful across congregations communities to break the jar well thanks so much buddy we have sadly 15 seconds has been the quickest hour of my life um thanks so much for, for opening your heart and sharing with us we we deeply love you give our love to your family and to your friends everybody jump on um Musi's instagram feed go and have a look at the new movement he's starting and look forward to seeing you all next week love you my brother thank you for listening to this audacious podcast we'd love for you to join us at one of our church services happening every sunday 10 12 and 5:30 p.m. 